0: you know, being on the mountain, getting ready for a summit push. We had been there for about a month and a half. And as we were getting ready to head up the mountain for our summit push, we heard what sounded like firecrackers outside the dining, dining room tent. And when we went outside to look at what was going on and looked over towards the pass, it look, turns out that the border patrol had been tipped off that a group of refugees was trying to get over the pass that day. Um, and instead of trying to, to wrangle them and herd them and bring them down and put them in jail and process them, they indiscriminately knelt down in the sh- in the snow and just started shooting. And you could see the bullets ricocheting off the snow. This was all happening about a quarter mile away from us. And the same time this was happening, another patrol of soldiers came into base camp and started rooting around in everybody's tents, looking for refugees that were hiding. You know, these were kids with
1: guns. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. So, what does a wheezy, asthmatic kid born to immigrant parents have to do with human rights in Tibet, climbing the world's highest peaks, and managing the nation's largest outdoor recreation industry office? Well, in the story of Luis Benitez, everything. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a young boy with asthma conquered the mountains and realized his dream only to realize he had a higher calling that took him on a windy road to Tibet, meeting the Dalai Lamba and working for the governor of Colorado. We are back, and I am so excited to be back with another season of Baby Got Backstory. As you may have noticed, we've been on hiatus, which is a fancy way of saying that life and holidays and snow gets in the way of interviews and editing and all the other things that go into producing this podcast. And I also may or may not have performed a comedy set at Caroline's on Broadway, and that's what happens when you interview a stand-up comedian on season one of your show. We have an amazing lineup of guests slotted for season two of the Baby Got Backstory podcast, and we're continuing to raise the bar in hearing stories from iconic brands, sneaker CEOs, political activists, and well-known entrepreneurs. And the list goes on and on, and I cannot wait. And I've mentioned this before, but recording this podcast and sharing these stories with you is my favorite thing, period. It is the best, and I hope you continue to listen and find value. And I want to thank you for taking the time to listen and absorb these amazing stories. I truly believe that stories shape our world and that the very best way we can connect with our fellow humans, find meaning in this thing we call life, is through the stories we share. But even more, when we're invited into someone else's story, it has this amazing effect. Just like when we travel to foreign lands and realize that those people across the globe, those people we thought were so weird or evil or strange or different, we find that they're just like us and that we have so much in common. And that bonds us as human beings, delivers empathy to our fellow humans, and makes the world right again. Now, if you like and enjoy the show, Please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes. iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts. And ratings help us to build an audience, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. And lastly, this show is all about creating value for you, as well as opening up a dialogue. I realize I'm doing all the talking, but please, let's start the conversation. You can find me at at Mark Gutman M-A-R-C-G-U-T-M-A-N, on all social media channels. And you can always send an email to podcast at wildstory.com with your thoughts and comments. If you have any great ideas for guests, please let me know. It's always better if you know or have a connection to the person you're recommending. But hey, any suggestions are welcome. I'd love to know who you'd like to hear me interview. And now on to season two in today's show. Today's guest is Luis Benitez, and his story is one that embodies the archetypal American dream. An underdog kid from an Ecuadorian immigrant who overcomes physical adversity to become one of the top big mountain guides in the world, only to have an international incident take him on a different path. And Luis is very modest, but don't let that fool you. As you'll hear in 2015, he was tapped by Governor John Hickenlooper to head up the Outdoor Recreation Industry Office for the state of Colorado. He's in charge of $60 billion worth of industry here in Colorado. Yes, $60 billion in over 500,000 jobs. And by the way, Governor John Hickenlooper, our beloved ex-governor here in Colorado as of the last election cycle, has just announced that he's going to run for president of the United States. And Luis was asked by Hickenlooper to be the first speaker at his inaugural presidential campaign rally. That shows the level of respect and admiration the presidential hopeful has for Luis Benitez. Luis, maybe you can help us get him on the show. And Luis's story is a true hero's journey. He follows the archetypal hero's journey pattern where he has his ordinary world and he's called to adventure. But like most heroes, he wants to refuse that call. It's not for him. But then he has a meeting with a mentor that pulls him into the fray, and he crosses into the threshold. As he crosses into the threshold, he has to go and meet some big obstacles, and as he comes back to his road for redemption, he comes back to the new world, a changed man. It almost follows that hero's journey to a T. And our conversation today weaves delightfully from the hierarchy of mountain guides, international human rights incidents in Tibet, conversations with the Dalai Lama, insights on the deep connection between the outdoor recreation industry and politics, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Luis, today you are the director of the Outdoor Recreation Industry Office for the state of Colorado. What is that? <laughs> Mark, that's a really good question. <laughs> I, you know, I think four or five years
0: ago, this was really seen as an experiment. You know, like you look at any other economy in a state, agriculture, aerospace, advanced manufacturing. I think slowly but surely, a lot of states that have a deep and wide ecosystem in the outdoor industry started adding up the dollars and cents, and started adding up how many jobs where we we were worth, and really just started asking a really simple question: What does oversight look like for this significant portion of our economy? So that was really the core of the idea and the experiment. How do you keep that economy strong? But through a bit of exploration with other states that were creating the role kind of at the same time, we just kind of all started asking ourselves, well, it can't just be about economic development. We also need to think about conservation and stewardship and the natural resources that are the backbone of that economic ecosystem. And then take it a little bit further down the road and start to think of okay, well, if we're a multi-billion dollar economy responsible for you know millions of jobs across the country what does our talent pipeline look like? And so now you're starting to talk about education and workforce training. And then that ultimately led us to public health and wellness and this intersection between, we all know spending time outside for, is good for you. Um, how do you codify that within the healthcare industry? So um, there's the oversight of the economy. There's the protection and appropriate preservation of the natural ecosystem that provides for that economy. There's the making sure that our talent pipeline is strong moving into the future and then helping to define that through the lens of public health and wellness, ultimately for for more longevity of health for any, beyond anything else.
1: <laughs> wow, covered a lot there, and it's super important in thinking about that you know, I don't know why, but it took me back to like thinking about myself as a young boy. And so like, like my dream was to be a lion tamer. Like when you were (laughs) a young boy in in Ecuador, was your dream to be the director of the outdoor recreation industry for the state of Colorado? I, uh,
0: you know, it's, I tell people all the time that, the sum of my ambition was to be a mountain guide and to own a guide service. And that someday, you know, the visions that I had was I wanted to be the crusty old mountain guide sitting in the rocking chair on the porch, giving the young guides all the, all the fun trips to Everest and other places all over the world. And that was it. That was really the sum of... Uh, of my ambition.
1: Oh, and, and I was just going to ask you to, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, even before that, when you're, you know, cause you, you're not from Colorado, you're from Ecuador and, uh, we'd, we'd love to hear a little bit about that and, you know, uh, what, what life was like there and maybe paint a picture for us a little bit, like what your upbringing yeah, was. Yeah.
0: Like, I mean, about. well, so dad's from Ecuador, mom's from the United States, from the Midwest and dad came, I mean, classic immigrant story. Dad came here for school, um, recognized that there were opportunities back home and, uh, with a, a new wife wife and a, and a baby on the way moved back down to Ecuador. But when I was born and after about, when I was about six months old, started developing really bad asthma, um, to the point where the healthcare system in Ecuador at that time in the early seventies just wasn't to where it needed to be for, for my healthcare. So reluctantly packed up the family and moved on back to the United States. But as I started to get better, um, started spending every summer back down in Ecuador, um, with family because my dad's the only one out of his family to ever leave. So, when it came to a love of the mountains, that really came from the Ecuadorian side of my family. But then what a lot of people don't know is the American side of my family. My mom's, my mom's father, my, my grandfather, owned a, uh, a fly fishing and bird hunting sporting goods store in the Midwest. So I really grew up with both a love of uh, hunting and fly fishing and, and mountaineering um, at, from a really early age.
1: Well, wow, really amazing, and so you, you know, not only just having that outdoor experience, which you know a lot of us share with our our parents or our family or something like that, but also like this idea that that the outdoors could be a business and, and getting that from your grandfather and, and and was your father a mountaineer?
0: No, no, everybody wondered, I mean, everybody sort of in the family, you know, pointed at my grandfather. You know, when my chosen profession was became a little bit clearer to everyone and sort of blamed him for all of this. Um, my, my father's brother was, uh, an engineer by training, an economist and an engineer by training, but a, a, a mountaineer as a hobby and in Latin America, most of back then um, the mountaineering the professional mountaineering that was going on in the guiding was run through clubs, very much like you 'd see a golf club or a sport club here in the United states and so you had all these different university led mountaineering clubs of which my my uncle belonged to one, um, and that 's where the mountaineering really came from and so from the business side. For my grandfather's story, you're absolutely right. It was you know, the classic story. It was a quarter mile down the road from my grade school and before my mom and dad would pick me up every day, I'd walk down to his shop and I'd spend time in the store um, understanding very clearly that this business not only put food on the table, but here were all these people that talked about wildlife habitats and riparian environments and river corridors and marshes. And how do you protect all of those things? And reflecting on it years later, I recognized that you know every political stripe in the book came into my grandfather's store and, and partisanship sort of stayed at the front door. And what everybody talked about, regardless of political ideology, was how do you protect, defend, promote, preserve these ecosystems and this economy? So yes from a really early age having that perspective was was really valuable and really special
1: so when did you really get that bug to to go you know mountaineering and and going after some of the big stuff i mean i you know do you have a memory of of when oh, that yeah. was oh yeah
0: very very clearly so i being a sick little kid i i couldn't really go outside all that much and um my dad had a collection of national geographic magazines and cuz i couldn't really spent a lot of time outside just really became a voracious reader. And I remember at, um, nine years old coming across the 1963, gosh, what was it? I think it was the September edition of national geographic. And there was an article in there about the first American team to climb Everest, um, in the spring of 63. And it talked about how Jim Whitaker, the first American to climb Everest, um, with Norbu Sherpa, um, also had really bad asthma and allergies. And I, I clearly remember sitting in my bed and like one of those classic cartoon light bulb moments. Um, this guy has what I have this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a mountain guide because it talked about him being a guide on Mount Rainier. And then it turned, talked about him being the first CEO of REI um, back when it was a co-op in Seattle. This is what I'm supposed to do. That that's a shop like my grandfather's store. This guy has what I have. So that's, that's it. Like that's, because at that time, I already thought I was going to take over my grandfather's shop. But I remember dragging that magazine into my parents' bedroom, pointing to the picture of Jim Whitaker and saying, this guy has what I have. This is, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to be a mountain guide. I want to climb Mount Everest. And, and you know, when it, it's a wheezy half half Ecuadorian, half Midwestern, kid um, says something like that, you know, the parent just kind of pats you on the head and says, that's nice, dear. It's like saying I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. But I I never really let go of it. I never let go of the idea or the dream. And it it sort of followed me all the way through school until it was really clear that I didn't have much of a choice that I needed to get out there and, and see what I could do.
1: Oh, that's incredible. And, you know, we had Chris Warner, uh, on the the show recently who I know you now, yeah. and uh, it's really interesting. Like he cites books and reading in these big adventure books. And I wish I could remember the name of the probably book for read.
0: him. I think it was Anna the story about <laughs> the first Italian team climbing the first 8,000 meter peak. I think I remember him saying that was a big inspiration for him.
1: Yeah, it was that. And there was also some like just some literature, right? Of like adventurers and yeah. swashbucklers and things like that that he really bought into and just like thinking of the power of of these stories, right, that we locate ourselves in and say, like, you know, that's like me, you know, I, I can be like that person and how influential they are. I just think that's amazing that, you know, for the both of you and kind of that really set you both and gave you that confidence that you could that hey, this is possible, like this, this might happen. Yeah, and, and I think the the industry from a business perspective, I think that's what we're
0: known for, it being incredibly adaptive and incredibly innovative. And I think that comes from, you know, when it starts to rain or snow, you don't stand outside and get hypothermic. You put on layers, you move around, you adopt, you evolve, um, you you try to make sure that that you address whatever's going on. And I think that for the first time we're starting to translate a lot of those ethics to To the the business environment, really talking about what a political voice sounds like or looks like for our industry. So it's, it's pretty exciting to see all those things slowly start to come together. When really, you know, I'm sure Chris said the same thing. We're kind of, we're kind of known as the fun kids. We're the ones that go out and do all these crazy things all over the world and um, show a lot of nice pictures and tell a lot of nice stories. But when, when you really start to deepen that conversation with the economic backbone of what we do and the oversight for our natural resources, now now you're talking about uh, a political gravity and depth and width the likes of which we, we really haven't explored up to now.
1: Yeah, and from what I understand, you weren't always this sort of solidified of of what your political responsibility was in the outdoors, and so uh, and I'd love to get there, but let's get back to you know you're this young kid and you you've. Declared your dream, and like so, like how do you go about making that actually happen? I mean, what were some of the (laughs) big first, you know, you know, (laughs) milestones or mountains? I mean, that you decided I'm I'm going to go after. And yeah, well,
0: you go about it by deeply upsetting your parents for not following (laughs) a traditional path.
1: That's all. All the best things in life. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's (laughs) how
0: you go about it. Mom, Dad, (laughs) I'm not going to law school, I'm going to go be a mountain guide. Mom, dad, I'm going to go to school to become a guide and live in Europe for a while. Um, You know, my folks thought I was on a journey to become a glorified camp counselor because back then, if you weren't living in Europe, um, there really wasn't an understanding of guiding as a profession at that point. Um, it was really, you know, you kind of have to follow your own bliss. And so for me, spending time with my uncle in Ecuador, um, you know, the first big peak I ever did was at 14 years old, Cotopaxi, which is a little over 19,000 feet. It's glaciated um, just south of uh, south of Quito, the, the capital. So, I mean, you can be summiting a 19,000-foot peak and be back in bed on the same day, which is a little surreal. Um, so it it was really I had no understanding of altitude physiology, didn't have any idea what it would be like. I had been tootling around on the glaciers at that point for a few years, learning how to ice climb and work with crampons and rock climb, things like that you know, that was really the first time taking a stab at big altitude. And the magic part that I found was that the higher we went, yeah, I totally got altitude sickness, had an upset stomach and headache and and dizzy. But when it came to the breathing part, you know, a lot of the other people that, you know, thin air makes you somewhat breathe like an asthmatic. And if you don't know how to pressure breathe and do some of those things, it can it can be deeply unsettling. And but I found that the higher I went, the more comfortable I was when it came to that because I had spent my entire childhood fighting to learn how to breathe and, and how, to, how to breathe through asthma attacks. So while I, I noticed other people around me getting more uncomfortable and more freaked out by by that difficulty breathing, the more comfortable I became. And so that that really settled into a niche for me and I was hooked.
1: Yeah, and like you know, turning that perceived weakness of asthma into a into a strength is 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 a great success story and a lesson that you know sometimes when when we have those types of things that we perceive as a weakness, that uh, there there's other ways of turning them into strengths.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, Mark, because I think about this a lot. Uh, You know, the doctors told my folks, you know, prepare yourself to just have a sick kid slash teen slash adult like Luis will never be a person that will go outside and play a lot he will kind of be the boy in the bubble it's just his asthma is so advanced and severe um He's just not going to have that, that kind of quality of life. And my parents refused to believe it. Um, You know, they said, well, what can we do to strengthen his lungs? And they said, the only thing that's really available is indoor swimming because the chlorine makes the air denser as a sort of chemical agent. And so there are less pollutants in an indoor pool, believe it or not. So back then the, you know, the, I guess the accepted, you know, accepted modality of of getting healthy was being part of an indoor swim swim team, and so that's what they did to me. They would throw me in the pool, an indoor swim team, until I had an asthma attack. When I had an asthma attack, I get driven to the hospital, but the next week I was back in the pool, and it helped. It, it really helped my lungs get stronger.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and I I really want to point out here that like, you know, so then you went on to make this to really fulfill your dream, right? I mean, you, you stated earlier, your dream was to uh, become a mountain guide, be the old, old OG guy sitting in there with the glacier glasses, handing out awesome assignments. And you're like, you're on your way. You quickly start to, to guide and summit on some of the world's biggest mountains. I believe you spent some, some time also in Ecuador around Cotopaxi. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 I,
0: I definitely, you know, paid my dues. And because I grew up in an international family, a lot, you know, most American guides have to kind of put in their time on Rainier or in Alaska, but because I came from an international family and sort of, that was a, a, a part of it, I uh, I jumped straight over the the fence and, and started working international.
1: Yeah, walk us through that hierarchy a little bit if you can. I mean, what's it like to be a a, a mountain guide? And, well, you know, I, mountain I
0: mean, or... it's like any other trade. I would I would say where you have to you have to put in your dues. There's this understanding that uh, you know there, there's a hierarchy and you don't just wake up one day and decide uh, my you know I get to go to the Himalayas I deserve it because of X Y Z. Um, you have to find a way to to, to put in that time and put in those dues. And so for most people that leads to, to Mount Rainier, cause in the lower 48, that's one of the few glaciated peaks that we have. And so all the guide agencies on Mount Rainier are really seen as the, the training ground. And then those, usually those guides get sent to Alaska to work on, you know, that, cause that's the only other place you can find glaciated high altitude peaks. And then and only then, usually, do you get sent to Latin America, which is usually the, the start for, for international work. But I was able to jump the shark just because I had language skills. I came from that community. Um, at that point in my life and and my fledgling career, had done a lot of climbing in Latin America. Um, and so instead of having to, like, I, I think at, in the course of my life, I've done four trips on Mount Rainier and all my other guide buddies chuckle. It's like, oh, my God, I had to put in four years on that hill and X, Y, Z. So even in the beginning, I was I was uh, shifting the paradigm and 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 changing up the the formula a little bit.
1: Yeah, and so I met you like here you are. You're you're shifting the paradigm. You're you're on your way. You're you're guiding internationally. You're literally on the path to fulfill your goal. Like, how did you get disrupted?
0: Well, you know, it's I think that. This is something that a lot of folks don't think about when they see cool articles in National Geographic or climbing magazines or things like that is all the mechanics to, to get there and to make those things happen. Most mountain guides don't, you know, you don't think of mountain guides as driving foreign policy or shaping international finance or having any any say in, in really how governments operate and work. But the reality is, we do, and we employ locals, and and it's it's a definitely it's definitely a piece of our overall equation. And um, you know, in in doing what I was doing in two thousand and one, got lucky, and uh, when I was twenty eight, actually got an invite to go climb Everest with uh, Eric Weindmayer, the uh, the only blind person to ever climb Everest. And you know, that invite was really. Um, (laughs) the only reason why they were selecting people, you know, 28 year olds that had never been to the Himalayas, et cetera, et cetera, is because no established guide would touch that expedition with a 10 foot pole because they were certain that, that Eric was going to get killed or somebody was going to get hurt and that it was a stunt. So the only people that, that were really going on the expedition were young guides that unproven in the Himalayas but we're just so hell bent on making, you know, making their way that yet again, it was another opportunity to jump the shark. And we were successful on that trip, came back all happy, healthy and friends, um, all fingers and toes really shattered the expectation of what was possible. Um, and then that's really the, when the phone started ringing and, you know, I kind of say it tongue in cheek, but you know, no offense to anybody from Texas. Literally, every oil baron from Texas is saying, "You know, well, if you got a blond guy up there and back, you you can sure as hell <laughs> take me to the summit and, and bring me down in one piece." Um, so it was a really heady time, uh, having not yet be not yet a thirty year old to to really look at some of that stuff and started working for some of the larger guiding companies, Alpine Ascents out of Seattle and adventure consultants out of New Zealand, which ultimately I went on to be the uh, director of operations for um, and the chief guide for. And, you know, working for them to your original question, I mean, that was it for me. That's exactly where I wanted to be. That was the highlight. I was globetrotting all over the world, guiding the seven summits amongst other peaks that we were working on um, at the time, splitting my time, you know, my quote unquote free time between New Zealand and Colorado. And then in 2006, I was on an expedition on Cho'o Oyu in Tibet. And Cho'o Oyu is a mountain that sits on the border between Tibet and Nepal. And there's a low pass called the Neng Pala that Tibetan refugees utilize to leave Tibet, cross through Nepal, and get to Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan government in exile reside. And you know you know, refugees utilize the pass going back and forth, and, and you see groups of them um, crossing every once in a while. In the back of your head, you know, okay, that pass is at 18,000 feet. These refugees clearly don't have technical equipment or the right clothing, but they are risking everything to get out of Tibet, get through Nepal, and get to India because that's where their spiritual leader and their government that's where it all is. And you know, this conceptually in the back of your head. And, and I think at this point in my career, wherever I went, I was kind of all, you always have to be aware of the political scenarios and what's going on from a policy perspective and and what wheels need to be greased and how all that works just to make the machine happen to run an expedition. But that expedition really, to your question, um, just changed the trajectory of me, my life personally and professionally. So you know, being on the mountain, getting ready for a summit push, we had been there for about a month and a half. And as we were getting ready to head up the mountain for our summit push, we heard what sounded like firecrackers outside the dining dining room tent. And when we went outside to look at what was going on and looked over towards the pass, it turns out that um, the border patrol had been tipped off that a group of refugees was trying to get over the pass that day. Um, and instead of trying to, to wrangle them and herd them and bring them down and put them in jail and process them, they indiscriminately knelt down in the, sh- in the snow and just started shooting. And you could see the bullets ricocheting off the snow. This was all happening about a quarter mile away from us. And the same time this was happening, another patrol of soldiers came into base camp and started rooting around in everybody's tents, Looking for refugees that were hiding, you know, these were kids with guns, and uh, you know, all, all the clients. We all had our backpacks ready to go, ready to move up the mountain. And I said, "Listen, let's let's get out of here. This is clearly a dangerous situation. This is an international incident. For what's folding, uh, unfolding in front of us, surely the world's going to know what's happened here by the time we come back down. These these soldiers can't follow us up the hill, so let's leave for our summit push." Let's get a move on. By the time we come down, the world's going to know. And, and I, I've just never had such heavy feet um, moving up the hill because immediately I, we had two clients that said, I'm done. I don't want to go for the top. Are you kidding me? We just watched people murdered right in front of us. But I couldn't send them back down to base camp because I knew what was going on down in base camp. So it was this push pull of let's get up to camp one where it's a little bit higher in elevation and at least we got to spend the night there because no soldiers will come up and bother us. So we at least need to be out of the fray in base camp. Continued up the hill over the next couple days, and I had radio contact with um, some of the team, our base camp team, and what, what's going on and how are things going? Like, yeah, oh, soldiers are still around. They managed to capture a couple, but a couple of refugees were definitely killed. Bodies are still over on the ice. We're not sure what's going on. Like, my God! Like, so what? What's what's the reaction from global media? You know, has anybody, you know, called any new agencies, agencies, blah, blah, blah. But when you're, you know, working over 20,000 feet, you have to kind of focus on getting your clients to the summit and back down safely. So you kind of put it in the back of your head, continued up the hill. After our summit push, when we came back down three days later, and I thought, you know, this is, I can't wait to hear like global condemnation. I just want to get my team packed up and get out of here because this, I'm sure it's just a a very loaded situation. They got back down to base camp and started looking around and asking around and everybody to a person said, you know, we didn't call it in. We didn't, this isn't our deal. This isn't our country. We need to rely on a good relationship with the government to get permits to operate here. We employ Tibetans. So, you know, the accepted story was don't make waves. Don't, don't, no need to talk about this. It's not our problem. It's a horrible thing, but let's pack it up, end the season and get out of here. And this, you know, I'm talking about 200 people, multiple international companies, expedition leaders with satellite phones, nobody had called in an it. And I, at this point was really good friends with the owners of explorersweb.com, which was a, an online, is an online adventure website that posts you know, at that point, you know, satellite technology was getting really good. You could send an article and a photo every day from your expedition and post it on a web page. And they were kind of the, the, the keepers of all of those stories because they were really good friends. I called them and I said, listen, something's happened here and nobody's talking about it. And I'm going to write you a story. Um, you have to keep my name and my company's name out of it because I'm still in Tibet. And, but it's happened. It's happening real time. You're going to have zero time to fact check it. You're going to have to put it up and you're just going to have to trust me. And to this day, I will always credit Tom and Tina Sorge for, for doing that and believing in me and believing in the story and putting it up. And all hell broke loose. Um, word got back to the the Chinese government that, that I uh, had broken the story, and they were all over base camp trying to confiscate satellite phones and really shape the narrative because, you know, the only way to shape the narrative at this point was to keep it quiet. But we were all at this point moving back to Kathmandu, traveling overland, trying to get out of the country, trying to leave. And it was it was really clear that for me speaking up right there at the beginning of this incident, I had set myself apart from the rest of my community. Now, I won't go so far to say the entire guiding industry said stay quiet, but everybody on Chua that year... Um, other than a handful of people, um, really chose to stay silent about about what they saw, uh, whether it was for lack of affecting the bottom line or not really knowing what to do. Uh, you can't fault anybody for following their own path. But uh, you know, I was in Kathmandu sitting in the hotel and um, the phone rings and uh, it's someone on the other end saying, would you like to meet some of the refugees that Um, survived the shooting on the past. They finally arrived in Kathmandu. They're at the refugee center and we'd love for you to meet them. And, you know, all this cloak and dagger stuff, again, getting back to your original point, I'm I'm a mountain guide at this point. That's it. That's all I am. That's all I ever wanted to be. That's all I ever aspired to. And (laughs) to be driven in a blacked out SUV um, through back roads in Kathmandu to a refugee center, to a back gate, um, to meet political refugees that were just part of an international incident. Never factored into my life plan <laughs> at, at all on any level, but I do remember meeting these refugees and and they were all kids being sent by their parents for a tibetan education and the, I was talking to the director these kids were all shell shocked because they just found out that some of their friends had been killed because they were wondering you know sometimes groups split, and how ironic right what's going on on our own borders um, and I just remember being filled with this righteous indignation that you know, we, where's the UN? Where's, <laughs> where's somebody, anybody to take care of this? How, how can this happen? And nobody do anything about this. And the director said, you've got a phone call. And it was this woman from Washington, DC, Kate Saunders, the director of the international campaign for Tibet. She said, hi, Louise, you know, thanks for speaking out. Um, we also helped smuggle out video footage, which was the first time that truly, any crime against humanity had been filmed inside Tibet in the last 50 years. So now we actually had video proof of our story. So they could no longer deny that this incident had happened. And she said, you know, you got two choices at this point. SUVs out the back door of the of the uh, refugee center and we'll take you back to the hotel and you can head on home and, and that'll be that. Or we've got some reporters out the front gate that would love to talk to you about your experience and what you've done and, and, and what had happened. And I really just started thinking about our industry back here in Colorado. Um, I had spent a lot of years as an outward bound instructor um, before I started guiding full time. And, you know, outward bound is, is, as much focused on personal growth and development as it is focused on mountaineering skills and river rafting skills, and I just thought if I don't do this, everything I've ever tried to teach a student about doing everything you can with what you have, then it, all that would have been would have been a lie. So I walked out the front gate, um, and my, life has been sort of different ever since.
1: <laughs> I love it. Quite a story, and you know, all I keep thinking is like. Why? Right? Like why were you so compelled? What was what was driving you? What called to you? Certainly I felt as you went through your story right there that, you know, there was a there was a build, right? And you see these kids. And so I get that. Like you see these kids and they're they're distraught. They've they've you know, their friends have have not made it, but like, why didn't you just shut up? Why Mm. didn't you just stay quiet? Like, why did you feel like you had to tell the world?
0: You no, know, it, Mark, it's ironic because over the years when this was going on, because there was a lot of back and forth, BBC did a documentary um, on the whole thing. I collaborated on a few books. I started working for the international campaign for Tibet as a spokesperson while I wasn't guiding. Um, and, and life got really difficult there for a couple of years. I I still laugh to this day that, that there were a lot of detractors and naysayers that said, oh, Luis is just doing this to grandstand and to get Publicity, And I think uh, the the amount of, of grief that came along with it, none of it was good publicity. It was, you know, dividing the guiding culture and industry with you should have kept quiet. We employ Tibetans. We need access to that country to keep an eye on things. And they're going to shut it down. And they actually did shut the mountain down for a few years based on this incident. We're going to lose access and we're going to lose money. And the Tibetans we employ are going to lose money. So you, you need to stay quiet. And I just you know the outdoor industry for me has and i know this is the the statement of an asthmatic child so you're going to have to bear with me has this very pure quality in my head and in my heart and it always has this is the industry that fed my family this is the industry where i learned about a wilderness ethic this is the industry that got a wheezy asthmatic kid healthy so in my mind's eye we have a responsibility to defend that ethic that goes far beyond a bottom line. And don't ask me why that moral code existed in me at that moment, but it was just this deep, deep, deep desire to, to not be so ashamed of who we were. I couldn't stand by and let this industry that I loved and had given me so much not find a voice in this process. And so in choosing to speak up and choosing to do all this stuff, I'll tell you, I think we talked about this the last time we saw each other, but um, hope the funny story with the whole thing is I, I tried to not bite the hand that was feeding me and stay in the guiding world while working as a human rights spokesperson for the international campaign for Tibet. And it was becoming very clear that I was going to have to stop guiding full time if I was doing this human rights work, because it was, it, it was getting ugly, it was getting contentious, it was, um, you know, I testified in front of the Spanish Supreme Court um, who at that point was trying then president of China Wu Jintao for crimes against humanity in absentia under the universal law jurisdiction for, for human rights. And again, in the back of my head, you're a mountain guide, you're a mountain guide. What are you doing? You're a mountain guide. Um, But I realized I wasn't going to be able to guide full time if I continued doing this work. And when I was prepping to go to Everest, um, my final Everest trip, believe it or not at that time, um, I got a phone call and, you know, we've all probably packed for expeditions in the garage, right? You're <laughs> counting snicker bars, you're making sure your, your Gore-Tex is dry, you have the right amount of socks. But when you pack for Everest, you hire three or four friends, you go to Costco six times, your garage looks like a, a shipping and freighting station. And that's exactly what we were doing. We were packing cargo to head to the airport to, to get shipped to Kathmandu. And so there was music blaring. I had a bunch of stuff going on, and the phone rings, and I pick it up, and, and I, uh, this man on the other end says, Hello, Mr. Benitez, my name is Lodi Gary. I'm the Dalai Lama Special Envoy in Washington, D.C. His Holiness has heard about the work that you've been doing with his people, and, and he would like to meet you. And uh, I in my infinite wisdom at that moment. There was so much music and so much confusion and I really wasn't registering what was going on. Said, gosh, Mr. Gary, tell His Holiness, thank you so much. Um, I'm getting ready to go to Everest. Um, If he's around in June when I'm done, um, I'd love to stop by and say hello. Um, Thank you very much for the invitation. Goodbye. Click and I hung up the phone. And, uh, the friends, like kind of saw this look on my face, like what, what's, what's wrong. And I explained to them what had happened and who called and they said, Oh my God, you've, you've got to find, find a way to, to call him back. You, you have to call him back and not knowing how to do that. Or it was a block number. I just remember thinking, I, I just blew an amazing life opportunity. And sure enough, the phone rings about 60 seconds later and it's Kate the director of, of ICT, International Committee for Tibet, laughing, saying, okay, Louise, pop quiz. When the Dalai Lama special envoy calls you and says that His Holiness wants to meet you, what do you say? So I got chastised pretty good, um, <laughs> backpedaled furiously, and uh, ended up going to Dharamsala to spend some time with uh, the Dalai Lama before that Everest trip. And the difference... I thought it was gonna be like a five minute meet and greet where you get to wave and you get to say hello, shake a hand. Um, There were gonna be a bunch of other people there and I was gonna be one in a long receiving line of many. And that's actually what I was told to expect. Due to scheduling snafus with a bunch of other people that were supposed to be there that day, it was myself, an interpreter, the Dalai Lama, and a couple of folks from the international campaign for Tibet and what was supposed to be a 15 minute meet and greet turned into a 45 minute conversation about culture and community and i remember being audacious enough to actually complain about the loss of my career saying i'm losing work i can't work as a mountain guide this you know working for the on behalf of the tibetan people has been incredibly difficult for me i had the audacity to complain to a living god he, in his infinite wisdom, just sat back and laughed and basically said, yeah, Luis, I'd love to be um, still living in the Patala Palace in Tibet and be my people's spiritual and temporal leader. But instead, I'm in a government in exile in a different country um, and a political refugee. So basically, kid, you can't always get what you want. And then then laughed again. And it sort of took the you know, the seriousness of the moment out of the out of the air and, and made it very light. But what he said next really shaped the trajectory of, of where I was going. He said, you know, because I spent a lot of time saying not a human rights person, not a policy person. I'm a mountain guide. He said, you know, sometimes you don't get to choose your path. Sometimes your path chooses you. And now it's going to be up to you to decide how you want to show up. And that stopped me cold. And I started talking to friends about it and reflecting and like, yeah, you know, Luis, you're the only one that wants to hang out at government ministries beyond getting the paperwork done. You want to understand social services and and how they're trying to help populations and a bunch of different levels. And you're one of the few people that have refused to pay b- bribes at the border to get gear across, to get things moving. And you know, you, you have this different take and you're the only one that carries the Economist magazine in a Ziploc other than Chris Warner, I might say. Chris actually <laughs> You're the only one that will carry an Economist magazine in a Ziploc from camp to camp when we're all reading uh, crappy romance novels. So don't say you're not capable of doing this because it's very much a part of your world. And, and that's really when I understood that I was no longer just a mountain guide. This was a part of my reality and a part of my future, and, and it was up to me how to how to figure out how to connect the dots.
1: Mm. Where, where does that experience meeting the Dalai Lama rank up there with some of your most famous accomplishments and and sense?
0: Oh, that's it. It's it, there's nothing. There's nothing beyond it. I mean, I. I <laughs> You know, due to climbing with Eric, we had the opportunity to meet President Bush. There's, you know, there's all kinds of amazing things I've been lucky enough to be a part of, but how he perceived and saw what I was struggling with and thinking and doing and just sort of helped me in a very simple way understand that, you know, we don't always get to choose our full trajectory you know you could go to school to be um a surge a brain surgeon and lose your hands in an accident and you're going to have to figure out something else to do with your life you could you know spend your entire life dreaming about being a mountain guide and get stuck in the middle of this international human rights incident and, and end up trying to figure out how to make your economy your world your state a better place that's, this is what you got. And, and it's, and his big thing is it's, it's shameful if you don't live to your fullest capacity, because that's, that's how you get rewarded in what comes next, at least in the, in the Buddhist religion. And this is really, so in painting this picture for you, I'll, I'll kind of end the story here. Um, You know, I was having a hard time absorbing what was happening to me because after that he's like, Oh, come over and see the, the Tibetan, you know, government in exile, the parliament, you know, we make laws here and India's given us this space outside of Darmsala. This is really governed by us, for us. And um, I got to sit down on a on a on a session in Parliament where everyone stood when I entered the chamber to acknowledge what I had done. And for a 30-something year old mountain guide, half Ecuadorian and half Midwesterner. I I just I couldn't comprehend it. And so being that mentally blown apart, uh, we ended the day. So every group of refugees that arrives in Dharamsala gets an audience with the Dalai Lama. So imagine whatever religion you believe in, basically showing up to a, a meet and greet with, with your, your God, in essence. And these are people that have risked their lives to get to Dharamsala, and they are just beside themselves with emotion. I thought, well, he's going to be gracious, he's going to welcome them, and that's going to be that, and it's going to be a very touching moment, and that's it. But what really seeded this whole process for me and finalized it was he said to that group of refugees that I saw, he said, you know, if you're a political prisoner and your life will be in jeopardy, if you ever choose to go home, you will always have a place to stay here. We will educate you, feed you, house you, you are safe, you are home, and you never need to worry. And you could just hear this big sigh of relief in the room. But then he said, and if you feel like you can be here, get a Tibetan education, get what you came here for, find that recentering place of peace and balance in your life. Once that's done, I need you to go right back to the village that you came from and help educate others. I just, uh, you could see the looks on people's faces like, Sure. Of course. You asked me to do that. No problem. So he literally took this as if you're in danger, you can stay the whole time. If not, you now have a responsibility with what you're going to get here to bring it back in harm's way and pay it forward, regardless of how uncomfortable that would be. And that to me was absolutely the most amazing thing I had ever seen. And that's really when I knew that it it doesn't didn't matter how uncomfortable this journey was for me, or how weird it was going to get or how disjointed. I had no choice. I had to lean into this process and figure out how I could take this and make it better not only for my life but for the economy and the the community that I believed in and loved so much.
1: Yeah, and like if this was a Hollywood movie, right now, this is where we'd end it, the crescendo, we'd have applause. <laughs> Uh, Like the whole, like the whole next kind of popcorn's done. That's right. I mean, that's the story, right? I mean, that's, but the whole next journey for you really, you know, this just propels you, like you said, you're leaning into like, wait a second, I am an advocate. I am, you know, here to do something bigger. I, I do have to have a voice. And so, you know, what I've also kind of gathered is, you know, you have a lot of duality in your life, right? You have this like dual, dual citizenship, dual, uh, uh, parent, parental background. You have like this, this dual interest in mountaineering and, and economics and politics. Uh, you have dual uh, homes in a way where you're always off either in far off lands or in Colorado. And at some point this duality brings you back to Colorado to continue your mission.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, You know, it's funny. And I think we know a lot of Coloradans that say this, like, I tried to leave. I I tried two or three times and, (laughs) and something always brought me back. And, and for me, it, it definitely, um, you know there were a couple of things. You know the, the the bigger thing, ironically enough, working for Outward Bound here for about a decade. And at the time, before he was our senator, he was the executive director of Outward Bound, Mark Udall. So even working with Mark, I saw this deep connection between the outdoor industry and politics that sort of got my ears up and had me paying attention to what was going on. And right about the time I was thinking about leaving guiding full time outward bound professional, which is think of, um, executive level leadership development with, you know, fortune 500 executives, but using outward bound methodology, they were looking for a director for the Rocky mountain region. So I, you know, I, I started my journey safely in the arms of outward bound and at a most, the most vulnerable time in my life, personally and professionally, I, I, I was able to come right back into the arms of outward bound and continue to grow. Um, and from a, from a philosophical standpoint, it, there was synergy there because you know, my whole complaint was the outdoor industry is lacking a moral compass. Well, what better way to affect a moral compass than utilizing out, outdoor industry methodology to train executives and leaders from Fortune 500 companies? So, um, it, it had a nice symmetry to it, and then from there was living in Eagle, Colorado, a 7,500-person community. And I just started complaining about the state of our trail systems, how we weren't utilizing our river corridor, our main street was suffering, and we're the bedroom community for Vail and Beaver Creek. And my job at the time was helping Vail Resorts build their internal leadership development university um, for their students. So almost like an in-house university for every level of employee and to where my friends literally had an intervention. I had these three uh, amazing people in my life at that point that sat me down in my living room and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run your campaign. Um, You don't have to worry about anything, but standing up and talking about everything that you're talking about right now. And we're going to get you elected to town council. So you can start moving the needle on, on some of these things. And that was really my first foray into politics. Got elected, was serving on town council, and was seriously considering making a run for mayor uh, when the governor called and asked me to do this job about four years ago.
1: Yeah, and so, and that's like such a like a huge jump though, right? You know, the the kind of, the progression is, ah, you do town council, maybe you do mayor of a small town, maybe you kind of, you work your way through, but all of a sudden our great governor, who I'm sad to say is sort of on his way out because uh, he served his terms, but uh, uh, John Hickenlooper calls you, I mean, what's that call like? I mean, do you already have a relationship with him? (laughs) It's yet another
0: surreal moment in my life. Um, So that's probably another one I can point to. Right up there with meeting the Dalai Lama. So I knew him through a couple of different things, um, initiatives with Outward Bound that he was a part of um, regarding wilderness education and and just sort of the environment overall. Uh, But the director of the Office of Economic Development and International Trade used to be the general counsel for Vail Resorts, Fiona Arnold. And I knew Fiona from working with Vail Resorts very well. And so when the governor started conceptualizing this role and talking to Fiona about where should it live and who should do it, Um, I I tell people all the time, like, literally, you know, because Fiona and I would talk on, you know, chat on Facebook and blah, 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 and stay connected. Fiona literally sent me a a message on Facebook Messenger. Hey, we're thinking of this thing. Do you know anybody? What are you thinking? And I remember messaging back, you know, well, I'm happy to help you shape the role and talk about what it should or shouldn't be. And so Fiona and I kind of did a little back and forth about, well, I think we should have a hiring panel, an advisory group, and it can't be a politico because, you know, in our state, you know, a lot of the modalities of recreation, we've got serious athletes here that represent these economies and they'll smell a a fake a mile away. And Fiona's like, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, well, okay, why don't you come on down? And we'll talk to the governor about all this. And so I realized now that she was sort of ironing out the proposal with me and then kind of pushed me in front of the governor and said, you know, here's, here's Luisa's idea. Um, And I pitched it to the governor and it literally, the guy's like, that's great. Fiona thinks you're great. I think this sounds great. Everything that you're doing in Eagle is amazing. When, when can you start? Like at what? Ooh hang on a second. I thought we were going to do a hiring panel. Like, no, nope, I think if we're going to do this, you need to be the first director. And that's the magic of John Hickenlooper, um, his ability to pull in private sector folks into the public arena for the betterment of of a state and frankly, for a country. And so in him and in that philosophy and in that request, I saw a lot of the things that I wanted to fix both personally and professionally with our industry. And so I will forever be grateful um, to Governor Hickenlooper for the opportunity. He's one of the few people, if he said, walk, walk through that, you know, jump off that ledge, walk through that window, I I would not even think twice to follow him.
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine. We love him here in Colorado. I'm hoping he makes a run for president uh, at some point. We'll here. see. But yeah, and I'm sure you have some, some insight there. Or maybe you don't, but um, you know, what's hard about being the director of the Outdoor Recreation Industry Office? Uh, you know, I, I think
0: it's trying to break, bust down silos. I think that's the biggest challenge right now, where it's the modalities of recreation that don't often talk or get along. You know, I think that's that's a big challenge. But it's also understanding how to take care of our natural resources, both from a fiscal perspective and a sweat equity perspective. Those things are challenging. But, you know, the more states that we have an opportunity to help create this office, the, the greater density and the, the larger voice we we have so now being at eleven offices across the country and getting the directors together here twice a year that the conversation is deepening and widening, um, literally day by day.
1: Yeah, and so what's your you know take on the current leadership of of the country today, it, especially like how it influences you know the outdoor economy?
0: Mm. Yeah, <laughs> you know I think there's a bunch of different angles that you can you can look at for this, be it through the Department of the Interior be it through, um, you know, land agencies having incredibly hobbled budgets like the Forest Service and BLM, um, the conversation with the energy industry when it comes to the extractive industries, you know, versus some of the renewable energy industries, you know, I think we're in this, this rare moment where... I mean, think back 10 years ago. Would you ever think that a clothing brand like Patagonia that's known as being led by the original dirtbag Yvonne Chouinard would sue a presidential administration or turn $10 million of tax revenue through the, the current administration's tax cuts back into fighting climate change? I mean, I think the reason why we're in unprecedented times right now is that for anything that's going on at the federal level we have really showed up as a stopgap voice to influence how these things move. And it makes me incredibly proud. You know, that same industry that I, that I lambasted for, for hiding behind a rock during an international incident is now showing up trying to save not only certain parts of our country, but certain components of our world. And, and that's, that's a tremendous, tremendous thing.
1: Yeah, and it, you know, and it takes me back to your grandfather's uh, shop, right, where you leave the partisanship at the door and we come together for those things that we care about so deeply and we know are greater than the, the partisan politics that we practice uh, outside of that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of of talk of, you know, a Teddy Roosevelt moment. And I I would always joke with Governor Hickenlooper that he truly is the embodiment, you know, of understanding how business and the outdoors intersect um, to really create a robust economy and a healthy population. But I do think moving into the future politically, especially around 2020, we have an opportunity to shape that narrative on a bunch of different levels. From the white house on down and i think the midterm elections that we just went through you started to see a political shift but now i think we're what we're going to see is a shift in understanding how cohesive social justice can and should be in relation to our natural resources in relation to our economy and our industry and what we do and how we do it i I do think we're on the cusp of a, a pretty exciting couple of years
1: Yeah. And even just recently, like shockingly, I'll I'll add, we're hearing uh, several reports coming out of the current administration about the dangers of climate change. Like, how do you think this is going to affect Colorado, the nation, the globe, uh, a lot of these issues that you've just been talking about?
0: Well, you know, (laughs) sure. You know, the the scientists released a report out of the White House saying, you know, if we don't address climate change, it's going to affect everything from our economy to our sovereign safety um, from a military standpoint and to have that ignored is kind of par for the course. And that that's sort of expected, but the difference I think that we're seeing now is it's they're, they're slowly but surely shooting themselves in the foot by, by taking some of these stances. And well, I think states can and will do what they can. I mean, you saw with Governor Brown out of California creating the Climate Coalition, where other states can say, sign on to keep their air quality at a certain level, their water quality at a certain level, regardless of how changes are happening at the EPA. Uh, I think, you know, being an asthmatic kid and understanding air quality deeply affects the the amount of asthma with kids. I take that incredibly personally. And I think this is a place where coming into 2020, we're going to have to shape that narrative because you can only do so much at, as a coalition of states. At some point, the federal conversation will need to shift in order to, to either reverse engineer what we've been fiddling with for the past two years or, or try to get back on track.
1: Yeah. So like, what's ne- What's the next chapter? What's the next story for Luis Benitez? <laughs> I,
0: I tell people all the time, I'm going to go be a coconut farmer in Fiji. That sounds really, really great.
1: <laughs> I, I imagine you like buying a coconut farm and sitting there and you're like just holding this coconut that looks like Wilson from Castaway <laughs> and just like like strangling the coconut, right? Like you can't
0: the, you, know, you know, you can't, you can't do it. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 That's what everybody else says to you, Mark, So That's pretty good. <laughs> um, you'll be fine for 48 hours and then be bored out of your mind. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, Thomas Jefferson, and, and not to compare myself to, to an ex president, um, he used to write all the time about the burden of leadership. All he wanted to do was to go back to his farm and to be a farmer and to understand that simple connection to the land because it's what he loved the most. And he, he talked all the time about the burden of leadership. And, and the, if you have the capacity to, to shift the conversation and change the playing field, then you must. That's, that's the burden of leadership. And I'm finding less for me, but more for all of us in the industry. You know, there's not one of us that wouldn't prefer, you know, endless ski days, surf days, bike days, climbing days, expeditions, back to back to back to back, over and over and over again, um, with a little bit of time to come home and wash your socks and and celebrate and and be at peace with the world. We are not in an era right now where we have that luxury. And so for me, whether it's continuing in this role or finding something else, I guarantee that maintaining a watchful eye over who we are in this capacity and what we do will continue to be a large part of my life's work.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly hope so. So a question we ask everyone, Luis, at the uh, end of our show, if, you know, what would the 20 year old you say if you run into a
0: <laughs> oh god that's good oh my god what the hell happened um you know I god that's that's really good I, I think he would say he would ask did you have fun and I would say oh yeah um was it hard and I would have to answer incredibly and then the last thing would be was it worth it and I would say, without a doubt. So, I I try to remember those three questions. Um, but it's interesting to hear you put that into the context of a 20 year old me. Are you having fun? You know, and it, was it hard? Because if it's not hard enough, I don't think you're trying. Really, that's a personal ethic. And was it worth it? And the answer for me is a yes across the board.
1: Well, since we taped this interview, Luis has announced he is leaving the governor's office, and unfortunately, he is not going to be a coconut farmer, but he is honoring the burden of leadership and continuing the pattern of creating roles that change how the business game is played. He is going to the outdoor juggernaut VF Corp., which owns recognizable brands like The North Face, Smartwool, Eagle Creek, and Vans. And at VF Corp, his title will be Vice President of Governmental Affairs and Global Impact, a job they created for him as the company moves its corporate headquarters from North Carolina to Denver. And it has been reported that he will have oversight of the VF Foundation, but details have yet to be made fully public. The next chapter for Luis is one that blends the power of public and private responsibility, a model that is surely to be the future of how we protect our public lands and outdoor recreation industry are you having fun? Was it hard? And was it worth it? I keep asking myself these questions since this interview, and I hope you do too. After all, if you can't say yes to these questions, what are you left with? Thanks for listening, and until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. A lot of big stories and I cannot lie, you other storytellers can't deny, baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business.